Beloved again to all, happy uh, Mother's Day, especially to you dear mothers. One of the great blessings as part of God's common mercy, which is even reflective from his nature, is the bond of affection between mothers and babies. Even in the animal kingdom, there's just a special affection and love and care and protection for mothers, uh, certainly for men and women. Uh, women created in the image of God and children is such a great blessing and joy. And as we think of mothers, we, of course, think of children. And it's interesting, when we think of children, we love children. Children are wonderful. There are so many tremendous aspects. They, they, they're cute, they're sweet, there's an innocence. Not innocence in the sense of sinless before God. Um, all it takes is to be a parent to understand uh, the depravity of man, but that's a side topic. But at the human level, there's an innocence, there's a uh, level of trust that is just a joy and uh, wonderful with children. Now, as much as we say that, we realize, though, that we don't want our children to stay children. And there's even been sad, horrific, tragic situations where you see the case of children who have been trapped and confined and not given to any kind of exercise, no exposure to sunlight, uh, horrible diets, and their growth, their physical growth, is radically stunted. Well, the Apostle Paul, as the father of many of those in the church at Ephesus, to whom he is writing the letter of Ephesians, Paul had a parent affection towards the church there. And he had a great heart and concern on the spiritual level for the church to grow. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter as we're opening there, we can ask the question, what is my level of maturity as an individual Christian? What's our level of maturity as a local church? What's the state of maturity of the American church? It's interesting, William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, in the late 19th century uh, said these words in looking in anticipation to the upcoming 20th century. This is what William Booth said. He said, I consider the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. That was, again, 120 plus years ago. What about the 21st century? I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that we live, at least insofar as a majority of American churches, we live in an age of rampant Christian infancy. I think it would also be fair to say that the state of the American church is a thousand miles wide and a few millimeters deep. Steve Lawson said in the context of the pulpit and in the context of preaching and in the context of corporate worship services, that exposition has been replaced by entertainment. Doctrine has been replaced by drama, and theology has been replaced by theatrics. Beloved, this is part of what the Apostle Paul has on his heart. As we read what our text is this morning, verses 14 through 16 in Ephesians chapter 4, we see Paul is animated with pastoral care and concern. Uh, follow as I read. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read verse 7 and then pick it up in verse 11 
through verse 16. Now, the reason I'm doing that is verses 8 through 10 was kind of an interruption that Paul had. So I'm going to read verse 7, jump to 11, just to get the whole flow of thought. So Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7 there, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ as a result we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love beloved this is the word of god that has been read in your hearing please attend to it as such now what we have here we are on in the latter portion the latter half of this letter we know that in the first three chapters paul laid the great theological foundation he gets in the kitchen of the ephesian audience and god gets in our kitchen as well in verses four excuse me chapters four and forward more by way of application what paul has been doing in verses one through 16 of what we have here as ephesians chapter four is really bringing out the tremendous unity that god has created of both jew and gentile together in one body of this tremendous unity amidst the diversity of every part and each member in the body of Christ. And as he's coming to the end of this section, verses 14, 15, and 16, he has this tremendous emphasis on maturity, on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we could break apart these three verses and unpack them in different ways, but for what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at five measures of a mature church. Five measures of a mature church. Two of them, Paul states negatively, and then the latter three states positively, but all captured from a positive standpoint, the measures of a mature church are stability, discernment, truth, love, and community. And the intent, beloved, is by way of reminder that Paul has repeatedly gone to the power of God, the uber-surpassing strength and might and working of God. And the illustration he gave back in chapter 1, and he cited even more going forward, was the very same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the power of God that is at work in his church. And so we can ask the question, what does the resurrection power of Jesus look like when it's flowing through us corporately? Charity unity diversity and a growing maturity with humility so let's take a look at the first measure of a mature church which is namely stability the story is told of a group of tourists that were 
touring a picturesque village in Europe. And as they were walking and meandering through the village, they came across an old man that was sitting by a fence. And one of the tourists, the story goes, said in kind of a condescending manner, asked the question, have any great men be, been born in this village? And the old man replied, nope, just babies. <laughs> now, that whimsical story captures a truth, beloved. We are born again, all of us, the greatest and the least, when God rescues us, when he saves us, when he puts life where there was no life before, it is precisely that. It is new life at our conversion. When God, the just, declared us, the unjust, to be pardoned and adopts us into his family, we are babes, we are babies in Christ. But what Paul is saying here is don't stay babies. Long for the pure milk of the word in the same way a baby longs for the milk of his or her mother but don't stay there start digging into the deep rich doctrines the meat of the word as well beloved christian life is a new life it's not a continuation of previous life it is a birth it's a new beginning and we also understand that growth maturation maturity takes time it's a process we need to be patient with one another. We know the proverbial statement, Rome was not built in a day, so also the church is not built in a day, and in the individual daughter of God or son of God is not built in a day. So we begin in verse 14. He says, as a result, we are no longer to be children. Uh, literally, it's, it's a purpose statement. It's so that we may no longer be children. The idea here is that now as new creatures in Christ Jesus, where old things have passed away, behold, new things have come, we need no longer behave, spiritually speaking, in a juvenile manner. And this is even part of the constant tension that we see in Scripture between what we already are and what we shall be, what we will be, what we are to strive towards. Even when we think of the unity, we know that the unity, as already been stated here again, is something that God has created. But we know, back in verse 3 of the same chapter, that we have a responsibility to maintain the practical outworking of that unity. Or in verse 13, we are to strive and to attain to that unity that God has created, practically speaking. It's a constant tension between the now and the yet to come, between the already and the not yet. But Paul's point here, beloved, in our passage is that we are all together growing into manhood. And there's a contrast. So the children, that we may no longer be children, there's a contrast between the children of verse 14 and the mature man of the stature and the fullness of Christ that we saw back in verse 13. The mature man. It's the same kind of thinking, the same Thing that grabbed the Apostle Paul's heart, for example, when he wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. He said, Brethren, <clears throat> don't be children in your thinking, but in your thinking be mature. So again, chin up, chest out, back straight. Great advice for all of us physically, infinitely more sound and needful advice for all of us in Christ, spiritually speaking. And this week, I was so blessed and encouraged in my Thursday workout session with my uh, son, Zach, and we're getting towards the end of it, 
And all of a sudden, Zach says, oh, look who showed up here. And there was his beautiful wife, Rachel, and my granddaughter, Aria. So I instantly completely forgot about Zach, and I hightailed it over there. You know, he was on my tails, and I went over and gave hugs, and it was wonderful. And they actually had a card for me, and, and Aria had the card, but she didn't want to give it to me because she had it in her mouth. <laughs> her little blue eyes were, like, popping out over the card, and she was just sitting there, you know, gumming it to death. You see, babies are, they're kind of like sharks, when they, want to, when, when they want to discover what something is, they, they bite it. Let me put it in my mouth and, and you know, see, see how it works. And what Paul is saying here is don't be baby Christians. Don't be a Christian that crawls along the floor and the first false doctrine that you find, don't stick it in your mouth. That's what he's trying to bring out here, beloved. Now, Again, I love babies. I love children. Children are wonderful. But in the context of how we ought not stay as children, we understand that children just are inherently unstable. They are completely undiscerning. I gave one example that, based on your laughter, I think you can resonate with. Um, we can think of the example of a mother that takes, on Mother's Day, <laughs> or any other day, the mother takes a, a small child to a toy store. Oh, and just it's a sensory overload, and you know, the, the, the little guy sees you know, something over here that he likes, and all of a sudden there's a shiny object over there, and then there's a color over here that grabs the attention, and then there's a noise, a sound over here. They're just very easily distracted. And finally, the mother in the story just says, well, look, <laughs> pick something, we're leaving. And the issue is, as soon as the little guy gets something and picks it, the instant the cash register is closed, he sees something else he wants, or there's another little child. You see, that's the kind of behavior that's inherent in children that Paul says we are to grow up and away from. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, quote, I know of nothing more tragic than to see Christian people who remain exactly where and what they always were. They end as they began, as children. They thought they had everything at the beginning, and so they never grow, and they remain spiritual children their entire life. Beloved, the author of Hebrews had the same kind of heart when he was writing to his audience. He said, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. So, beloved, the great charge, the great theme that we saw even in verse 13 that Paul really even zeroes in on and focuses here is maturity. And we understand that we become mature through the word of God, with the people of God, in the ministry of God, namely in the ministry of the local church that we are plugged into and part of. And what's sad is that many times there's this kind of myth and thinking among many in the whole kind of Western American Christianity, even along the lines of some of the things that I said at the very beginning of the message, that if a man or if a woman achieves some level of greatness in some other realm, that all of a sudden, when they're in Christ, they'll achieve greatness there. That's where you'll even see the dynamic of you'll get some celebrity or professional athlete, and well, hey, let's give them a platform so they can you know, espouse what they would do without any regard whatsoever to the qualifications, the high qualifications that God gives in 1 Timothy and Titus that are inherent to the people that are gifts to the local church that we read back in verse 11. Beloved, the nature of our unity, the wonder of our diversity, the progress, our progress to maturity should kill any notion of superiority and produce humility. And 
we understand when we are reminded that we are all babes in Christ at the point of our new birth, that the church doesn't need brilliant personalities. The church needs faithful servants. Every member, each joint, every part doing the work that God has foreordained and planned and given to the individual person. So children are gullible, they're undiscerning, they're unstable, they're wobbly, they're easily distracted. They're also creatures, and again, I love children, so I'm not down on children, I think, you, yeah, hopefully you understand that. But they're, they're creatures of impulse and moods. They're prone to tantrums and fads. That's why Paul here in verse 14, he kind of shifts over to imagery from a stormy sea, being tossed here and there by waves, this unstable, wildly fluctuating. It's interesting, the Greek word, and there's one Greek word that is translated as tossed here and there by waves, by those six English words. It only appears one other place in the Bible, and that's in the Greek translation of Isaiah 57, verse 20, where there the prophet Isaiah said, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it can't be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. So there's a tremendous instability, wobbliness. It, that's not even sure if that's a word about the nature of children that Paul says, as we grow in Christ, we need to come away from. He continues still here, Ephesians 4, 14, and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now, when he says carried about here by every wind, it's, don't think of like a nice little you know, feather that's kind of fluttering on the wind. This is a violent whirling about, the kind that would make somebody dizzy and upheaval. It's the same kind of imagery that James, the half-brother of Jesus, he actually coupled this stormy sea and this, these stormy winds, if you will, in James chapter 1, verse 6, when he said, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And, and the idea there is there's an unsteadiness, there's a, an utterless, there's a without mooring nature, there's no anchor of the soul of one who in James is doubting the veracity and authority and necessity of the Bible and the kind of steering away from that and guarding against that kind of perpetual behavior and state of being that Paul is bringing out here in Ephesians 4. You see, the author of Hebrews also captures the same message again. He says, do not be carried away, Hebrews 13, verse 9, do not be carried away by varied and strange te teachings. So that's where he's really getting to the rub. He's talking about doctrines. He's talking about the craftiness and deceitful scheming even of the enemy. Uh, one other dimension or one other characteristics of children, children need immediate satisfaction. When they're young, children have no concept of delayed gratification. With good mothers and with godly fathers, we start to help them understand that at an early age, but our, all children are born with the Veruca salt disease. I want it now, you see. But the Apostle Paul, we understand as believers that our ultimate reward come in eternity. We also even understand that by God's grace and mercy, many times, even on this side of glory, we can be blessed to see the fruit of our labors. But it takes time. 
And even as I was thinking about this dynamic, I was reminded once again how blessed we are by the godly men and women at this church and how blessed we are by the godly men that God has gifted this church as leaders. From Brent and Earl a year ago as deacons, Justin just recently affirmed as elder, and Josh and Kyle and Eric and Steve and Casey who are being affirmed now as deacons, every single one of them faithfully with total contentment and satisfaction serve for a very long time, years even at times, without any concern about recognition as part of the office. Beloved, that's what we all need to be. That's the kind of dynamic that Paul is bringing out. And to use a biblical example, Paul cited Abraham when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Abraham, excuse me, in Romans 4, verse 20, speaking of Abraham, Paul said, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. That's the goal. So the first measure of a mature church is stability. The second measure from Paul here still in, stated by Paul in the negative is discernment. Discernment's good, so I'm putting the positive label of what Paul is warning against. What Paul says with the rest of verse 14 is that we need to be rooted, we need to be stable, and we need to be discerning. He says, look in the middle there, by the trickery of men, literally playing dice, this cheating, by craftiness, in deceitful scheming, in deceitful scheming. But the, the craftiness, it's interesting, twice we see similar words used by the Apostle Paul both times attributing these kind of language, this kind of crafty scheming to Satan. For example, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul there said, I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. And the scheming, this word translated as scheming here in Ephesians 4, 14 it only appears twice before the second century here in Ephesians 4:14, and later in the same letter in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, where Paul there gives the great command and exhortation, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So the imagery given here is that we know that the giftedness that we enjoy in Christ is given to us by Christ, back in verse 7 and verse 11 here. And what he's warning against is he's warning against these men, these false teachers with their doctrines of demons, but he goes all the way back to the source. So in something of the same way that Christ gifts the leaders to the church, Satan is the original source and promotion of this kind of deceitful scheming and craftiness that we need to watch out and guard against. Like a wild predator stalking its prey, we know uh, Satan prowls about like a lion looking to see whom he can devour. The same kind of imagery, if you're here, when we were blessed to go to that short epistle of Jude, Jude talks about these kind of men. In Jude, verse 13, he says, these men are wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. They are reckless, unrestrained, they are untamed. Uh, 
we can ask the question, what is it that would make a Christian pray to this kind of trickery, this kind of craftiness? Well, J.C. Ryle said, neglect of the Bible makes many a prey for the first false teacher whom they hear. That's like the child crawling across the floor and comes across that false doctrine and sticks it in his mouth. And we can also ask, what's the underlying lie of all lies? Even as we saw the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians and then here later in Ephesians 6 point back to Satan, we know that the beginning lie, the first sin in a sense, the first temptation was when Satan said as a serpent to Eve, did God really say that? It's an attack on the word. So you move from misinterpretation to deception, and then finally, flat-out denial. You see that progression in Genesis chapter 3, and that's what Paul is warning here. But what Paul is saying is, babies fall for that. Children fall for that. Mature men don't. Mature women don't fall for that. It's even wrapping up the picture of that storm you see. It's kind of like the old cartoon pictures where the wind, the clouds would be a cloud with a face and puffy cheeks and they would be blowing the wind on the ship. That's kind of like the false teachers and the false doctrines that they are blowing. What Paul here is saying is that unity in the body, maturity in the body provides ballast in the boat. Uh, the ballast in a boat, that's what gives the boat stability. It makes the boat ride lower in the water so there's less of the boat exposed above water to be influenced uh, by the high winds or by the waves that come. And the boat can cut through the water that way. That's the imagery that Paul is charging all of us towards. And beloved, you can withstand the wind of false doctrine when we are, have the ballast of the word of God deeply in our heart. What is taught, what is believed, what is meditated upon, and what is applied. The ongoing faithful ministry of the word of God with careful exposition and relevant application, and not just from the pulpit, but from the adult Sunday school classes and the women's fellowship ministry in our children's school. We minister the word of God in our children's ministry. Now, the way they minister it there is different than the way I preach from the pulpit. It's different than the way the men teach adult Bible study. It's at a child-appropriate level, but it is absolutely the word of God that is being ministered and brought to bear on those dear young children. Beloved, that is the point. This is the stabilizing force. This is the guard. This is, if you will, the child seat in the car ride of Christianity. So, stability and discernment. Now we move from the way Paul states the measures in the negative to the positive. We move from guarding against to growing towards. And so the third and fourth measures of a mature church are truth and love. You see, Paul understands that error is not overcome merely by negation. Uh, we understand that the intent of those men that Paul just warned against in verse 14 was not to help, but was to harm. The contrast here is that our intent and you, by speaking the truth in love, you can help, you can encourage. He says, but speaking the truth in love. Uh, some of you may have come across this in your study, may understand. Literally, it says truthing in love. There's no word there for speaking. In our English language, we don't have a verb form of truth, but they did in the Greek. It literally says 
truthing in love. So to be sure, speaking, the tr- actually, just, just say speaking the truth. We'll get to love in a second. So to be sure, it's speaking in truth, but it's also holding the truth, defending the truth, walking in the truth. What he's saying here is this is truth-telling, truth-doing, truth-holding, truth-preserving. This is loving the truth, doing the truth, speaking the truth, and living the truth. Now, when we say that, what kind of truth we're talking about here? There has been some misunderstanding by some people. Well, what this is really saying is it's just general truth. If if you're an employer and you have to release one of your employees, when you give them that hard truth, doing in a loving fashion, I don't think at all that's what Paul is saying here because the context is the word of God. In fact, again, this is flowing from even the gifts that Paul elaborates on back in verse 11, which are really five offices of men who actually are gifts to the local church, all of whom are truth agents. All of those offices, the apostles and the prophets, which were foundational. And then the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. Remember, pastors and teachers very closely related, like conjoined twins, they're separate but inseparable. All of those ministries are ministries of the word. So what Paul is talking about here is the truth contained within the Bible. Jesus' name, we read from John the Apostle in Revelation 19, Jesus' name is faithful and true. We as new creatures in Christ Jesus, as part of the new birth that we enjoy, we glory in the truth of Scripture. We glory in the authoritative teaching of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon had this great statement. He said, the church would be one with itself if it were one with the truth. Or maybe stating it differently, the church will be one with itself when it is one with the truth. So truth is the foundation. How about love? I like what Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, he said, love is the law of his kingdom, the lesson of his school, and the livery of his family, the uniform of his family. Beloved, biblical love is not weak. Biblical love is strong. Biblical love is true. Biblical love is pure. That's why John the Apostle in his first epistle, 1 John 3.11 said, this is the message You have heard from the beginning, what? That we should love one another. Jesus said, now, when we think of truth and love, Jesus said in Matthew 26, you will always have the poor with you. I think in kind of the same way, you will always have the truth brigade with you, and you will always have the love brigade with you. Now, if you're here when we went through Jude, uh, you may remember that I shared that in my early Christian days, I was kind of in the heresy hunt, hunter camp. I mean, I just, I believed truth and I just wanted to find heresy and I wanted to fight, fight it. I needed to grow and mature out of that. I was also, I was the captain of the truth brigade, you could say. Jude, I was kind of an oddball because when I was a young Christian, Jude was one of my favorite books for that very nature, for the polemical nature. Also, Ephesians 4, 14, I distinctly remember that was one of my favorite early verses. Yeah, don't be like children. Don't be carried about. It's all, all about doctrine. In fact, I think the few, few, first few words of verse 15 were also in that, speaking the truth. But in my early immaturity, I think I stopped reading at that point. I stopped reading in love. So there is the truth brigade. But how about the love brigade? 
what's helpful? What's harmful? I don't know. I just love. I just, I just want to love Jesus. I just want to love each other. It, blow, that may sound well, but you're carried about. You're blown about here and there, to and fro by every wind. You're blown over and you go nowhere. We understand that biblical love is not merely cultivating a vague, loving spirit. We need both truth and love. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, the scriptures constantly emphasize the importance of balance in the Christian life. To grow in some respects and not in others leads us to a monstrosity. For some parts to be overdeveloped and others underdeveloped produces a lack of symmetry and form, which is uh, ugly. Now, in the first service, I had one of those thoughts come to mind, which I didn't have in my notes, and I shared it there, and I don't feel underprivileged, so I'll go ahead and use the illustration here. My beloved Margie, I remember she, something that she just could not stand was when there would be some guy that was really muscular up top and had, had little bird legs, little skinny <laughs> calf. <laughs> my blood was just like, eek. You know, there, there's a symmetry. There's, there's a proportion, beloved. You need both. You need truth and love. So I, I apologize. It's the foolishness of preaching. What can I say? My only defense is, like I said, I didn't have it in my notes, but I said it, so I'm responsible. Beloved, the point here is this. Truth becomes hard when it's not softened by love. Love becomes weak when it's not strengthened by truth. That's why Paul says, truthing in love. Truthing in a way that embodies love and equivalently loving in a way that embodies truth. That's his charge. That's why John also, still in his first epistle, 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In deed and truth. They are both necessary. And by the way, love and truth are colleagues, they're teammates, they're not opponents. And, and they're not even, they're, they're to be sure distinct, but they're different sides of the same coin of the new life that God puts in you and puts in me when he saves us, when he makes us a new creature in Christ Jesus. And again, remembering the ministry of the word and even the flow from the gifts that he gives back in verse 11 that God has chosen to hide himself in a sense in the frail stammering tongue of the preacher but when the word of God is faithfully taught the voice of God is clearly heard from the pulpit from the Sunday school class across the coffee table and discipleship in the table talk meetings and the women's ministry and the list goes on beloved the church grows from infancy to adulthood through the teaching ministry of the word as it goes in the pulpit so it will go in the pews there's a great quote, and as far as I could research, we, I, we don't know who the author is, but it's a great quote. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it, excuse me, to be safe practice it to be holy it contains light to direct you food to support you and comfort to cheer you this book is the traveler's uh, the traveler's map the pilgrim's staff the pilot's compass the soldier's sword and the christian's charter 
Here, heaven is opened and the gates of hell are closed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and condemns all who trifle with its sacred contents. End quote. Beloved, that's why Christ himself said, in hearkening back even to the manna from heaven that God provided to the nation of Israel, in Matthew 4, 4, Christ said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And none of us want to have a brain without a heart. None of us want to have a heart without a brain. None of us want to be articulate and cold. None of us want to be warm and unintelligible. Truth and love, both are necessary. Truth is not just being right. Love's not just being right. And I will say this, that uh, when I consider God's blessing here on Santan Bible Church, when I consider the comments that I hear from various visitors, especially maybe captured when we have our newcomers' lunches, you could kind of distill it down into two general categories and the one is i just i really love how the truth is applied here and taught here in all the different ministries and i really love how you seem to just love one another beloved that's it this is how we grow the body so stability discernment truth and love the fifth measure of a mature church is community and by the way I said measure, uh, there's a word coming up in verse 16 that really is even literally translated measure, and that's a good way to kind of track this for each of us to measure ourselves and for us to measure ourselves as a corporate body. We could also say these are the five rewards God gives to the church, the five rewards that God gives to the church for the people of the church exercising their giftedness. I mean, if you think about it, if you are given a gift and you take your gift and you love your gift and you use it, and then all of a sudden, oh, there's a reward for the fact that you're using your gift. That's what's taking place here. These measures of maturity are also God's rewards to his children for exercising our giftedness. Each one of us, back in verse 7, and certainly we'll see the individual responsibility come out here corporately in verse 16. We have the head, Christ, the body, and then each and every constituent part. A reminder that we are dependent upon one another for our individual maturity as well as our corporate maturity, the latter being the strong emphasis that he's bringing out here. At the end of verse 15, Paul says we are to grow up in all aspects into him. So the maturing, but not with some aimless, goalless state, but into him who is the head, even Christ. Beloved, Jesus is the source of our life and the goal of our growth. Christ was the source of our gifts back in verse 11. Christ here is the source of our growth and the goal of our growth in verses 14 through 16. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, verse 16, from whom the whole body. So you move from the head to the body. And we 
looked at this before earlier in Ephesians, that there are many metaphors for the people of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. A family, a vineyard, a flock, a building, a bride, a kingdom. And perhaps the most profound metaphor is the metaphor that's used only and exclusively by the Apostle Paul, namely that of a body. And the point here is he's saying you have a body, you want to aspire and strive towards a body that is befitting the head who is Christ. The verse continues, being fitted and held together, literally being fitted together and held together. Uh, If you've been with us through all of Ephesians, you remember that Paul takes a bunch of Greek words and then he intensifies them and he puts a little Greek Prepositions soon, which means with or together at the beginning of these words. He did that, has done that repeatedly. He does that again here, being fitted and held together. Excuse me, being fitted together and held together. Uh, The second one, Paul also used that same word when he's writing to the church in Colossae in Colossians 2.2, and I love the language he used there. Colossians 2.2, so that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. That's the same word translated as held together here in Ephesians 4, 16. Continuing the verse, by that which every joint supplies. So the corporate maturity, each joint is necessary through every assisting connection. Now, when, when you see joint with the body, you know, I think elbow and you know, knee and, and uh, I won't make any comments on what happens to those as you age, but <laughs> side topic. But, but even joint might not be the best one. I, I mean, that it's not specifically when this body imagery that Paul's using here, he's not necessarily talking about the joints as we would understand them per se. He could be talking about the nervous system, the blood system, the ligaments, the bones, the arteries, the muscles, the whole body. It's the same kind of imagery. It's interesting. Remember, there are four chapters in the New Testament where Paul, or where they're kind of go-to chapters where you would go to for gifts. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, and then 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, Paul says, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. In Romans 12, verses 4 and 5, there Paul says, just as we have many members in one body and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So in the very same places where Paul, Peter was a different one, where Paul brings out different gifts that God gives to the church, that's the very same place where he drives home the point that we are one body amidst the tremendous diversity and we are each absolutely necessary and essential. Beloved, we are reminded that we're not joined together by our country. We're not joined together by our economy, our ethnicity, our money, or anything like that. It's Christ who joins together his body. He's the mortar that cements us together as a building. There is the one and the many, to be sure. There is the unity and there is the diversity. Paul continues still here, verse 16, according to the proper working of each individual part. Literally, according to the working in measure, metron, the metric, we saw that word before. This is where the measure comes in, the proper energizing strength and might of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. So to give 
to grow the body to maturity, not just the individual parts. John Calvin said of this idea of while we do, again, grow individually, we have a responsibility to grow individually, the thrust is on the body, the maturity of the church. John Calvin said, no growth is of any use which doesn't correspond to the whole body. The man who desires his own separate growth is wrong. Uh, there used to be a phrase, I don't know if it's an, you know, part of the vernacular now, but of an unchurched Christian, of an unchurched Christian, beloved, understand this, uh, the un unchurched Christian is a grotesque anomaly to the pages of scripture. You can't find any kind of support of an unchurched Christian. Now, to be sure, we understand there are times of transition. You may geographically move. There are reasons to leave a church and to look for another, but any kind of prolonged period of just independent existence of Christians apart from a local church cannot find any kind of support from the pages of scripture. In fact, just the opposite. And beloved, God's gifts to us, God's gift to you, aren't intended to dead end with your desires or with my desires. If we're not plugged into and serving in a local body, you're robbing yourself and you're impoverishing the body of Christ because God has gifted you with something that's unique that this local church or the local church you would be part of needs from you. And then finally, Paul ends this section, again, verses 1 through 16, the same way he began it. Look back in verse 1, by way of reminder, he said, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. In love. Then you go back to verse 15, speaking the truth in love. And then he finishes verse 16, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In love. Beloved, the point God is making to you and me here is in a sense, nothing else matters until we get this one thing in love. Truth in love. But when we get this one thing, then also nothing else will ultimately matter because the truth, the body, the growth, the maturity, the love, the exhortation, all flows from that. Beloved, the word of God here through Paul spoke to the church in first century Ephesus. The same word of God equally, with equal power and relevance and applicability speaks to this church in 21st century Gilbert. And it says, Show up, eat up, shape up, and step up. And when we do that, we will all grow up. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the blessing of the knowledge we have of you, our God and Father. Thank you, Lord God, for the great love by which you chose us even back at the beginning of this letter. You foreordained an eternity past to have your love and favor and grace and mercy rest upon us. We are stunned when we look from Scripture and know that the love that you, God the Father, have for God the Son, that's the kind of love you tell us that you even have for us. We are so unworthy, but we are eternally grateful and joyful. And thank you, Lord God, that that very same love that you, the Father, have for the Son is the kind of love which is indeed shed abroad in our hearts, that we can love 
one another. We can love you. We can love those outside the church. Lord, help us to be changed and transformed from glory to glory by these magnificent truths. Thank you, Lord God, for the universal church, every land, tongue, tribe, and nation. Thank you for this sweet, beloved Santan Bible Church, for the work you have done, are doing, and will do. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray. And Lord God, for those that are here this morning that are listening or even watch or listen later that don't know you as Lord and Savior, we pray, Lord God, that they would understand the nature and their predicament of the dire consequences of their sin, of the hell that awaits, the just punishment. And Lord, help them to run to you and ask for your forgiveness. And we praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus, that you say that anyone that does come to you, you will receive them to yourself, adopt them into your family, make them a new creature, a new man or a new woman, and that they will be with you, all of us together forever and ever in heaven in your presence. And we pray that everything we do now would be a foretaste of that as your will is being done here on earth in Santan Bible Church. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.